Welcome to episode number 55 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Andy Belinsky, who is the CEO and co-founder of Lensable. And Lensable is the convenient and affordable online prescription lens service. You can get the lens you need in your own frames without leaving home. It's super easy. People are loving it. It's affordable. And that's why Lensable is crushing it. They've raised about $4 million so far and are making a ton of progress. Andy's career spans Live Nation, Hope Look, Beachment, and he even started, grew, and sold his company, Chirp Ads. He has a ton of experience in this space. And in this episode, we go through how Lensable actually got started. She spawned from a different company he started, how he grew the company to the point it's at now. We talk a little bit about raising money and that $4 million of venture capital they've, they've had so far. And also actionable tips and strategies later on in the episode, so be sure to follow along till the end. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by subscribing and leaving a rating review in Apple Podcasts, iTunes. The show is also found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and even YouTube. It's everywhere, folks. And the recently launched Just Go Grind Facebook community can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash Just Go Grind. You can also find that if you go to justgrind.com slash podcast. Without further ado, here is Andy Belinsky, the CEO and co-founder of Lensable. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on and talk about all of this different things you've done in your career and especially Lensable, of course. But before we dig into that, I w- definitely want to ask about entrepreneurship in general. Like, where did you get your start as an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, I think it, the start can come from a lot of different places or times in your life. You know, with me, it was really just an inherent quality. I think that I had, I was always a very curious younger person. I, and oddly, I come from a family of, uh, you know, more kind of traditional professionals, uh, a doctor, a teacher, uh, my brother's an attorney. But, you know, from a young age, I was kind of always snooping around different, had a lot of different interests. And really kind of at any point, I saw an opportunity to make money or to get a prize or something I was trying to. I remember as, as young as maybe, you know, seven or eight years old, they have book fairs at, at your elementary school and you can, you know, sell books to people in your community. We would go door to door. You'd get like a big stuffed animal at the end if you did. And it was always a, you know, who would get the biggest stuffed animal in my school? So, you know, it was just kind of that, as I would say, a very, very early stage. I'm sure I did a lemonade stand here and there. For me, it kind of started in high school. Along with three buddies, uh, we actually created uh, a club in our high school. And it was called the Young Entrepreneurs Club. I would say we all probably had a similar background type of a story that I just described. And what the club was going to do and why we were starting it, I think, was a little bit more unsure and mainly for extracurricular for our resume for college. But we ended up kind of structuring almost like a you know an interview series with local entrepreneurs or business owners in our city uh, coming in and kind of talking to groups of students and eventually kind of decided to start a business, you know, out of the club. And we were the first ever business that started out of our high school that was kind of like, you know, legal within the high school and licensed. They got to license. And so we sold agenda books, like little calendar day planners, 
for each class, you know, to, to all the kids in the high school, we went out into the local community and sold advertising space in the books. And, you know, it ended up being three of my four years in high school. It was a business we ran and sold it back to the school, actually, when we all graduated. And so I'd say from a true business entrepreneurship perspective, that was really where I got my start. That's awesome, man. And, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that kind of early experience in some capacity or another. And it's always like looking back, you can see, oh, that was kind of the start of everything. But, you know, what was the draw for you in terms of entrepreneurship? Was it just like, oh, let's see if we can make some money? Was it just fun to try to sell things? Like, what was it for you? I'm just curious. I would say the money was, it is and was always a factor, obviously. I mean, obviously, but I'd say, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, it is a non traditional route to generate lots of income or wealth for yourself, for sure. And so the great part about it is it's, you know, it can be uncapped. The terrible part about it is there is literally no security. But so I would say that was one factor, but really just my, my kind of curiosity, I, I, you know, you got to be who you are. I didn't have any kind of from an educational perspective, any deep passions, right? I wasn't, uh, you know, super passionate about history or law or medicine or science or anything of that nature. I just like business. Anytime I'd see a new business, I'd think of ways to change it, make it better, things they were doing wrong or right or whatever, you know, it might be. And so I think it was just kind of that my, you know, inherently in me and my mind wandered that direction. And every time I kind of got into a company I was working for or an idea that I was thinking about, the next day a new one would come to mind and I would literally try and juggle as many things at one time as I could, which well, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more. And I don't necessarily recommend that. You know, early on, that was just kind of how I found myself existing. And, and I think that is really what led me to wanting to truly be an entrepreneur. You know, I, I went to uh, undergrad business school at Ross University of Michigan, and they had a really, really cool entrepreneurship program. I had a professor, his name was Len. I'm going to botch the last name, but it'll come to me. Anyways, he was a local Ann Arbor entrepreneur, an extremely successful businessman. And honestly, while I wasn't a fan of the businesses he necessarily started, he was just this cool guy. He got to achieve the level of success where he got to do what he wanted and say what he wanted and kind of come up with ideas as he wished and got into just a lot of cool stuff. And I wouldn't say he's what made me decide on this path because I had a number of years of work experience for other companies before I kind of went out on my own. But that was definitely maybe, you know, a little bit of icing on the cake for me. Yeah. And you mentioned having obviously the experience in high school entrepreneurially and then also going to college and kind of having that experience as well. So taking those experiences, like how did that impact what you did in terms of jobs coming out of college then? Well, there is actually a tie. You know, I think nowadays it's a lot more normal to start up your own business right out of college than maybe it was, you know, 10 years ago when I was in college or, you know, 14 years ago, even just the technology has done what, you know, how younger people can now do things a lot easier, more, you know, or kind of at a younger age and achieve levels of success. Uh, I'd say it's gotten much easier, you know, as time has gone on. But I actually, so kind of building on my entrepreneurship experience in high school, I had a passion for live events when I was in college. And there was half of that to me ended up meaning, you know, throwing parties, but parties where people paid to get in or we brought in entertainment, you know, live, live entertainment that people were interested in paying for. And so music was a passion of sorts for me. And so 
I actually joined the concert committee at the University of Michigan, was the vice president of that committee for two years. And then my sophomore year of college, a friend of mine and I decided that we wanted to throw concerts. And we wanted to do it on our own because I now had a little bit of background in concert production and promotion. And he had you know, an interest in it too. And so we created a standalone business that was throwing local shows at small music venues in Ann Arbor and eventually became uh, you know, larger, a larger idea where we were looking to throw you know, kind of more, I wouldn't say stadium shows, but bigger name acts and money for it. And, and so that business, yeah, again, was and not never ended up being a huge business or anything, but you know, was something that we did in college and had a lot of fun with. And my first job out of college, much differently than everybody in the undergrad finance focused business program at Michigan that went to Wall Street and did investment banking and things like that. I actually went to work on the industry side at Live Nation, and I was an internal consultant in the in the strategy group. So. And say at Michigan, everyone was either an investment banker or a consultant, but they worked for one of the public companies. And so I actually, you know, found a company that was tied very, very closely to something I had experienced doing the few years previously and kind of married the two. And so to me, that was kind of how I used that experience, uh, being a young entrepreneur to kind of tie back into my career after that. Yeah. And looking at the different roles, obviously, that you've had since, I mean, since then, it was like Live Nation, Hot Look, Beachman, and then your own company, Chirp Ads, but a lot of that's business development. So just want to touch on the business development side a little bit. I guess what are the, some of the things that first come to mind when you think of business development, like the essential things you should do with the company? It's always going to vary, but I'm just curious on that side of things. Yeah. You know, I, I would say business development is about the most generic and broad type of job you can have because it literally means something different at every single company. Mine was unique. Uh, after I left Live Nation, I joined a startup called Hotlook, which was uh, a flash sale business. 2009, the very kind of beginning of, of that flash sale trend. And there was a very, very large cover, one that was kind of the leader in the space called Guild Group out of New York. And then Hotlook was the the kind of next in line, the, the West Coast equivalent based here in LA. And one of the guys I became very friendly with at Live Nation ended up going over to Holook and taking over the head of marketing role over there and literally needed to build a marketing team from scratch. And he actually, you know, kind of came to me and told me about the company and offered me an opportunity to come work with him. And he asked what I like to do. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was so I would say, you know, marketing is very again broad in general and you know there's there's there are specialties within it but at the time I didn't have experience other than I said I like to do deals <laughs> and I like to do partnerships. And so that was basically we kind of structured a, an opportunity to do business development, be the kind of partnerships guy, the liaison between really any any third party company that had any value for a variety of reasons to the business and the business. And I was the intermediary. So we developed, of course, strategies. You know, we wanted to do X, Y, and Z in the social media world, and we wanted to build our email list without paying for it. So we would go out and seek con- relationships with large content publishers like a Hearst or Condé Nast, and figure out ways to get in front of their audiences to then generate new members for Hotlook site and things like that. So I would say it's a general term, a broad term, and then ends up being very, very specific to the business that you're in. But I would say it is. Most of the time, and you know, if we fast forward to Lensable now, business development is we are seeking out brands to have relationships with to sell within our platform. Right? There's one version of it where you can just go out and buy inventory, which then becomes fully your risk. But kind of 
creating a unique reason or unique type of structure that you can go out and source and pitch to to brands that maybe can get you know provide you inventory without paying for it or on consignment or something like that. I would say it's very similar in what I've done previously, where we were trying to get eyeballs and visibility and users and traffic without paying for it, at least in the traditional sense of how you buy media online. And so that's uh, you know, as so I think it's identifying a business opportunity, it's creating a kind of presentation or structure that partners potentially could be interested in, and then going out and sourcing a list of people that you want to try and pitch it to and, and seeing what kind of business you can generate off of that. Yeah. And I don't want to get into Lensable in a minute, but I have to go back a little bit. So with pitching these different brands or trying to get these content deals, like, I mean, what's your approach to them? Because these are obviously like large publishers. You have maybe like a new company or your goal is obviously like, you know, grow your email list and get more customers. But like, what does that pitch even look like? Or how do you craft that? It's a great question. You know, I, I would say, and I don't have any, this is the structure and this is how you should do things. And I'm really creating it on the fly here. But, you know, first it's kind of, well, what, what is it that we want from this partner, right? That's kind of understanding. You know, that, that's the first thing you, you have to determine. The second is what about what we offer is going to be intriguing to them, right? If there's nothing that's intriguing to them, then they've got no reason to even listen to you or, or take a call or a meeting. And so it's kind of understanding those two pieces first. And then I'd say based off of that, it's creating a set of assets or opportunities or value that you can kind of provide them if they do decide to come and work with you within the context that you're pitching and like building a presentation of that. I would say from there, it's really identifying a kind of a list of people or contacts or even just companies that you would love to be able to speak to. And from there, and I always found a ton, a ton of success on LinkedIn, really just cold reaching out to people whose job descriptions seemed like it was the right person or could at least lead me to the right person. You know, it's a lot more crowded these days, but back then it was it was a little bit easier. And I, I still use LinkedIn almost religiously to do that. And so, you know, at the time, fortunately, we were kind of a fast growing business that in the space we were playing in had a lot of good PR that was coming out. And, you know, I was not really at a place of disadvantage when I was going out to try to get a meeting or pitching, which is a lot more helpful, of course. You know, if you are in your new company and you don't have, you know, clout in the industry or people don't know about you, you know, if you are doing something unique and, and valuable, then you likely, you know, have an opportunity. Uh, and if you can't, you know, then a lot of hopefully people are just happy that you tried and, you know, and maybe make someone, some people's business change over time and whether it's right for them then and now or, you know, six months or a year or two years down the line, you've kind of planted a seed. And so I think it's always just, uh, you know, kind of stick to the script, try to be as, direct as possible with what it is that you want, why it can be good for both parties. But, you know, lots of visuals, lots of, you know, kind of case studies, if you have them, things like that are always super helpful in those types of approaches. Yeah. And just a quick follow up on that one. So yeah, getting your foot in the door helpful by having something unique, obviously, to offer them, you have to think of it from their perspective. And then from a more of like a repeat working with them perspective, like how do you kind of maintain that relationship or like try to do multiple deals versus like one time things or that type of approach? I'm curious on how you approach that. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say obviously, you know, I don't, it's not kind of like you just get one shot, um, but to some degree you do, especially if the companies you're going out and pitching are larger or more established than yours. And so I think you just need to, not that you should only or never give it your all, you should always be giving it your all. But I would say that first relationship is the first impression. And 
if it works, then you're usually, you know, in a really good spot to be able to kind of build on your business with them and introduce other opportunities to work together. If it doesn't, then I think, you know, the most important part is being kind of as transparent as you can, sharing as much data and, you know, reasons why and show that you're, you're kind of doing what will do whatever it takes to try and make it successful. Because usually in business development deals, there's a lot that has to happen by both sides. I mean, the, the idea and the negotiation and the, the contract is one piece, but the actual execution or creation of whatever assets are required, I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it. So you just want to be cognizant of people's effort and time and try and not sugarcoat things if it don't work, but you know, give them your understanding as to why and try your best to fix it. But if it can't, just to, you know, hope that they know you did your best. And usually that at least gives you a seat at the table for another conversation about something else in the future. Right. And you never know, I guess, if, you know, some people move on from those companies and move to other companies, and at least you have a good relationship with them. I imagine that type of thing as well. And with uh, the other businesses you've done, just real quick with Chirp Ads, I saw that you built and sold in under a year. What was that? And how did you sell it so fast? Uh, so Chirp Ads was a unique business that was actually started myself and a, and a co-founder, but along with uh, the Incubator Science Inc. They were the Originally, you were behind Dollar Shave Club and Dog Vacay and a handful of other you know, exciting businesses. And so their model is a little bit different, right? They kind of incubate ideas and had some shared resources that you know, a variety of businesses in their portfolio were able to lean on. But we kind of came in to run a mobile ad business that was really... It was unique. When you think of mobile ads previously, or the last few years, it was you know, kind of in the gaming space. Um, you play apps, you see ads that people click on them to try to download other games and things like that. And that's a, you know, a, a world that a lot of companies have made a whole lot of money. We took a slightly different approach, saw an opportunity in the in the space of kind of long tail content websites. So mobile websites that traditionally just didn't monetize their mobile ad inventory well. We love the Facebook kind of ad native ad unit or platform as a model to kind of go after with these other sites. And so imagine, you know, on ESPN.com, you're scrolling the the headlines. Um, they all kind of look the same, right? It's a little tile that has a bullet point and then whatever the headline after that is, we would actually build an ad unit that looked exactly like that. So from a design perspective, we would basically place you know, do a deal with ESPN.com, we would place it onto their site and then we would on the other side go out and do deals with advertisers and attempt to fill that space in as best we could. So, you know, it was just a unique idea that had kind of a a large opportunity in, in science. Luckily we had a great partner. So they saw you know another larger company in the gaming space actually so doing something that we didn't do but was you know, kind of available for sale and then they ended up kind of thinking that what we did and what that company did jointly could be you know a, a really powerful platform and so kind of brought the two businesses together in a joint you know a joint offering and that's awesome yeah I mean something that's so quick and it makes a lot of sense you see an opportunity to pursue it but not everyone necessarily thinks like that I think, I think it happens that you have so much you had the experience beforehand obviously in entrepreneurship and, and with different companies to then even be able to execute on that and that brings me to lensable I just want to like where did lensable get start from yeah lensable was the byproduct of another business that I had started along with a co-founder Back in the early part of 2012, we saw an opportunity back then to create an eyewear brand online. Accessories are something that are, you know, when I was at Holt Look, I saw brands that I maybe hadn't heard of or didn't have 
you know, tons of recognition, but sold cool product and uh, were able to generate lots and lots of income very, very quickly. You know, and, and I think accessories have very, very high perceived value. And so, you know, these were brands that were kind of popping up out of nowhere. And through that experience, I thought that that was something I could do. Uh, so I ended up partnering with a buddy of mine who had some experience in the, the eyewear space and on the manufacturing side. We came together to create a brand. Uh, it was called Ivory Mason. At first, the plan was just to create our own frames and then sell them on the flash sites. But after we had a pretty successful first year doing that, we decided to turn our, you know, our focus back to the direct consumer side of things. And it's really when Warby Parker was becoming, gaining notoriety and really starting to scale and, and grow as a brand. And we all know what they've turned into today, obviously. Uh, so the part that was missing for us at the time was the prescription part, right? We had frames, but we didn't know a thing about prescription. And we knew that that's what the business that we wanted to do and kind of copy what Warby was doing, but just with our own brand. And so we ended up teaching ourselves the prescription business. And after about six months, figuring out how to integrate you know, that supply chain and uh, product offering into our site and ended up running that business for the next three and a half years. And I would say we love that business, but there's a lot of complexities. Uh, well, there's a lot of challenges in an inventory business. So when you're, you know, frame manufacturing is a, it's just a long process, you know, three, four month production times. Uh, and you're always kind of designing for, you know, many seasons ahead of you, you know, no different than really in the apparel space, but specifically in the frame space that those were issues. And so you always sat on a lot of inventory, whereas in the prescription lens part of the business, we actually, you know, we worked with a, an optical lab, which stocks all of the lens inventory and really allows you to kind of create, you know, a order on demand or when orders come in. And so you didn't need to sit on inventory there. And so I would say from a business perspective, we much prefer the non-inventory business to the inventory business, even though it's a different product. And then I'd say there were, you know, very commonly known pain points in the prescription lens world for a very long time, far before we've been in the space that, you know, they've just been extremely expensive. Traditionally, you had to go into, you know, an optometrist or an optical retail store to get that done, right? See a doctor to get an eye exam and, um, a lot of just customer pain points as it relates to that type of experience and every kind of service and product that we really liked about it and saw an opportunity in. And then just a variety of different use cases for consumers that we were the consumer who loved the frames that we were buying or that we were making and our script would change and we would need new lenses, but we didn't feel the need to always purchase a new frame. Right? We were kind of seeing that in the industry a lot. And and so really just kind of out of all of those things from this idea that we felt like we didn't, you know, we're not seeing anywhere else. We no one else was really innovating on. Fortunately, you know, kind of things you could do online for the optical world were much more prevalent today than they had been traditionally. And so we took a shot at it and uh, you know kind of out of that turn turned lensable. Yeah. And with that, so I obviously people who have people have ideas all the time for different things or you see opportunities, but I'm curious on how you kind of vetted that or did the research to be like, yeah, let's do the lenses. Like what does that research process look like? Or like what are you doing to figure out like, okay, this is actually something we're gonna pursue? Yeah, you know, for us it was a little bit unique in that it was kind of we recognized based on existing customer inquiries from our frame brand, right? I mean, we were kind of doing a portion of this business and we had a customer base that we could lean on for more information. And so, you know, we were getting inbound inquiries from customers that got prescription lenses with the frames that we were selling them, but asking if they could 
send in frames from other brands that they had because their prescription had updated or something of that nature. And, and so the, the kind of consumer demand portion of it almost came to us. Based off of that, we were able to, you know, put together a series of questions and surveys that we could go out to that, you know, that existing customer group and kind of determine a little bit more information. You know, research can be many, many ways. You can hire companies to do it. You can do focus groups. You could literally just come up with an idea and go out and try and test it. But we were fortunate in that, you know, we had a base of the kind of exact customers we thought we would want for this type of business with them being the ones telling us that it was a, a business that didn't exist for them and something that they wanted. Yeah, it's a perfect mix. And and at that time, by the time you got to Lensable, so you already had the Ivory Mason company for a couple years. But what was the team then when Lensable like was started, I guess? What was the consistency of that team? Ivory Mason was just a few people outside of me and my co-founder, you know, some kind of operations people and, and things of that nature. So that business actually shut down entirely. And so Lensable was a standalone idea with my co-founder and I as the kind of only two people working on it initially, both from the idea phase into the kind of minimum viable product. We raised a little bit of friends and family capital before we had anybody else helping in the business. Now, fortunately, a friend investor of ours had a, what I guess you could call a little accelerator business or had experience helping kind of super early stage companies grow a little bit. So once they came in and became an investor. They, you know, essentially acted as our partner at the very beginning stages to help us, you know, think through the rest of the pieces to get the business live. And that was from, you know, design and branding of the site to development to kind of early marketing plan and then understanding what, you know, resources we would need, either agencies or in-house to, you know, to really launch the business and go from there. So that was kind of where things began. Yeah. And I know people have an idea of something and they think about fundraising. I've even talked to people at USC and the MBA program and think about ideas they have they need funding for. And I've had people on the show before do the friends and family you know, type of round. For you guys, was it like you knew a certain number you were trying to hit from that friends and family uh, round of raising or you know, pre-seed, I guess, whatever you would call it? Like, How did you approach that? Yeah, totally. We had a friends and family and then a pre-seed. So this was, you know, was kind of like we had an idea. We had a really, really simple version of our site and that was it. This was kind of the idea being spoken about to someone who decided that it was something they thought was a fantastic idea and they invested and they were investors. We jointly with them determined the amount of money based on, you know, a handful of milestones we wanted to get to with that first money. So it was not like we went out seeking capital and it was X amount for X percent of the business. So, you know, that that's a unique story. Um, that doesn't happen often where it kind of falls into your lap a little bit. I would say when it goes, you know, at the early stage, at least when it comes to fundraising, yeah, you need to be, you know, very, very meticulous about how much you need and what it's for and where you think it can get you and use that combination as what number you come up with, um, of course, and then the support of what that number will do for you when you go out to actually you know, try and raise money. Yeah, and then that's obviously crazy important because you've had a, the experience, so you knew kind of what you needed to do with that. And then from like the initial stages of Lensable, like how did you get the initial growth from the company, the initial customers, and that first kind of inflection? I guess the first inflection point was we early we had somebody kind of right before we launched the, the site, and then just after we had somebody that was helping us uh, with PR, third party, you know, just a, an individual. And, you know, we weren't spending lots of money on marketing or anything like that. We were just trying to tell people about it, get the name out there, do as 
much organic kind of marketing of ourselves as possible. But PR was one place that we played a little bit. And uh, we had the opportunity to do an interview with the tech segment editor of a live news network, one of the major news stations, but a low, you know, it was more localized kind of the Northern California region. So Channel 7 News, you know, ABC 7 News in NorCal. And we, we it wasn't a live interview. It was a Skype interview that we were kind of just explaining, you know, a little bit about our business and didn't really know that it was even being taped or anything like that. Out of nowhere, you know, maybe three or four weeks later, you know, we would get notifications on our phone if a person signed up or a new order came in or something like that. And frankly, the phones just started blowing up. In a 24-hour period, I think, you know, we had more signups and orders that came in than we had had in the last, you know, two months before that in total. Ended up realizing the next day is that this interview that we did uh, was actually live on San Francisco ABC 7 News, you know, at 6 o'clock the night before. And fortunately, then it got posted online and it got picked up by a bunch of different ABC uh, affiliates. And honestly, that was our inflection point at the very, very early stage for sure. You know, enough to kind of get us going and then launch a very, very, you know, small amount of digital marketing on top of that Facebook and Google search to just, you know, make sure that there was kind of constant traffic and could get further learnings. And then luckily, you know, about a month and a half or two months after that, we got introduced to who ended up being our, you know, kind of pre-seed funding partner um, company out of LA called Amplify LA, which is kind of the premier early stage accelerator program uh, here in the city. Yeah, that is awesome. And I I feel like uh, because of the concept and how you knew from the customers and everything how much of a need it was. It made a lot of sense to go the PR route because it was something that people could like, okay, this is obvious. Like you, you custom lenses, like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Why isn't someone not doing this? Oh, Lensable's doing it. Like, I don't think everyone necessarily goes the PR route right away. Like, how did you know to even do that? You said that you had the friend. Yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, there's, there's really just two routes to go. Well, there's, I guess there are three routes to go. The third, or maybe it's the first, you know, is the kind of luckiest route where you can somehow via, you know, just social media and blog if you have it or, you know, a large network you have access to that you can kind of for free start to get out what you do and build engagement around that and community around that. Of course, that's the, the goal uh, to spend as little as possible and get in front of as many people as possible. But it's, you know, a lot easier said than done. Um, especially when you're selling a product. And for us, especially when you're selling a product that is just so unique. For one, it's a completely different buying behavior. Most people never even thought that lenses were sold alone. So we had a lot more up against us when it came to getting people to understand what we did through, you know, free channels. I would say the PR route was the one we went to really because it was the most affordable. <laughs> we only had so much money left in the bank at that point and Getting good at on digital media, digital customer acquisition is takes time. You could have thirty years experience, and you know every business, every product is all different. So you have to know that a lot of things you're going to test, and they're not going to work. Um, if you have a business where everything works from day one, then find me. I'd love to invest, uh, but it's very really that that happens. And you know, so for us, we didn't want to just give this a 30 or 60 day shot and spend the rest of the money we had and hope that things picked up and kind of knew that we weren't going to be experts at marketing, you know, replacement lenses online at that point, thought that we could probably get more bang for our buck on the PR route and fortunately had a resource that we were able to do it affordably with. And so it was just that choice that we made and luckily it panned out. But you know, I'd say those are probably the different ways and you really just have to identify what's, what's right for your business at the time. 
Yeah. And early on in the company, how were you spending your time primarily? Obviously, you had a co-founder. And how were the kind of the roles split up initially? Yeah. Um, you know, early on, depending on how many people you have, and usually it's not very many at the beginning part is, you know, you've got to do a little bit of everything. Now, from a title perspective, I was the CEO, he was the COO. Uh, we had a development resource that was uh, working with us and eventually hired kind of a, you know, an operations and marketing um, person as well uh, to, to help us out. But really, everybody was doing everything. So early on, you know, you're, you're trying to build a business, you're trying to get a website off the ground, you're trying to ship out orders, you're trying to get people to know about you, you're dealing with customer service, and everyone was really just kind of all participating. And I think you have to do that, you know, until you have more support. And for us, it was a very long time before we had additional support. So primarily, I was focused on the marketing side and a lot of the customer support, where, you know, my Co-founder was a little bit more focused on you know the operation, the kind of dealing with our our lens supplier, making sure that orders got made correctly and shipped out properly, and that type of thing. And then we'd all kind of work on everything else together <laughs> uh, until, until we had more money and were able to hire more people. Right. Yeah. Life of a startup, you kind of just had to roll with it. And then you, know, you mentioned obviously it changes when you get money, and then eventually you raise a few million dollars. So how did things change then, and what was like the focus at that point after raising some funding? Yeah, you know that that's not too long ago at this point. Only about six months ago is when we closed our first, you know, we'll call it institutional round of, of uh, capital. Um, so we did have a three million dollar infusion into the business, which was wildly helpful. And so at that point, it takes a little bit of time to you've hopefully identified where the support that you need is, and you know, created job descriptions and things like that. But recruiting is not easy. It's extremely time consuming. It's you know, lots of conversations, lots of meetings, lots of people you got to meet with because I think you know the team that you hire early on that will hopefully be with you the longest and be the most integral in kind of getting your business through a lot of the turbulent times at the beginning is I don't want to say is the most important, but is extraordinarily important. So you need to not mess up when you still have are still at the early stage. You need to not mess up with your hires. And so a lot of my time focus went to hiring. But at the same time, you know, you can't take your foot off the gas. And that's the thing, you know, really never stops. You always need to be growing. You always need to be innovating. You always need to be kind of optimizing. And so as CEO, you know, you have responsibilities to your employees, of course. Uh, you have responsibilities to your customers. You have responsibilities to your board. And you have responsibilities to your investors. And at the end of the day, it all comes down on you. So I would say, you know, if you can quickly get enough people to on board to handle a lot of the or you know day to day operation and free your time up to do things like hiring and report back to you know investors and board and look to do business development deals. I mean, that's kind of where I'd like you know where I want to focus my attention on ways that I can make sure the business is uh, continuing to grow and meet goals and has you know building a really great culture, but. Again, money can go very quickly and you need to make sure that you're optimizing and maximizing what you get out of it. So I don't not operate the business, right? I still answer customer support inquiries. I'm in the weeds on a day-to-day basis, uh, really for whatever needs support in the business at that time, uh, in addition to all that other stuff. But I think as you kind of get bigger and uh, have you know more employees, there, there definitely are more kind of oversight things that you need to focus on. And you kind of always have to be growing and you always have to be raising and you always have to be projecting out the value in your business to press and to customers and to the street and to other potential investors. And it's really just like a nonstop amount of things that you have to always be doing. 
Yeah. And I'm curious, and with that, to the point, like how much of your time is spent, right? You know, percentage breakdown exactly, but like high level vision, you know, where the company's headed versus in the weeds day to day, putting out fires, whatever it may be. Like, what's the split kind of, how's that go for you? Yeah, you know, I think luckily the high level vision and where the company is going is something that fortunately for us has not had to change very often. So, you know, it gets laid out and it continues to get iterated on and communicated internally, but, you know, hasn't really had to be tons of new strategy. Now, we are very soon going to launch kind of the first new business unit that we have since launch um, in a couple of weeks, which will be selling frames and lenses. Now, not just lenses for frames that you already own. And so, you know, that's something that kind of shifts focus and required a kind of new set of research in advance and then strategy and then communication internally and building. And so I would say 30% of my time is probably spent in that vision strategy portion of the business and other you know, percentages, but uh, quite a bit of it is still spent kind of doing day-to-day tasks in you know, the things that I'm focused on, you know, kind of making sure that my direct reports are uh, everything is going well and that I'm getting all the right information and we're tweaking things that might not be working jointly. And so that's quite a bit of, of it. And then I would say, you know, there's the always recruiting, always fundraising, always, you know, having to report back and be out in the space to try and further your branding and how much people know about you and do cool deals and stuff like that is probably the remainder. So, but, you know, in the office every day as early as possible, work as late as possible and uh, none of that slows down. We're definitely in scale mode and we got a, a long way to go before we get to where we want to be. And, you know, it requires everybody to kind of have that work ethic. Yeah. And just to take a little bit deeper on that, you, you know, office early, stay late. Like, I'm always curious as to what people's schedules are kind of like. I mean, it's so in flux with the startup, but like getting to the office, what time are you getting to the office and kind of like take me through your day? I'm just curious as to that. Yeah, I don't sleep a ton. I'm usually up around six. You know, some people will say that's sleeping in. Some people will be like, you're crazy. How do you wake up that early? But when you're, you know, when all the responsibility or quite a bit of the responsibility falls on you, you know, you need to be thinking, you just have a lot running through your head and it's very, very difficult to get that out of it. So it does affect your sleeping patterns to some degree, but I just try and get to sleep early. So I'm up, you know, early. Usually there's a first round of kind of emails that are coming overnight. We're in a consumer business, right? So, you know, my 6 a.m. is East Coast, 9 a.m. And my, you know, 10 p.m. is right. There's, there's just stuff coming in at all times throughout the day. So fair amount of kind of stuff you want to get off your plate. So it's not too daunting once you really truly start the day. You know, have a coffee to wake up, try and be in the office by nine. But, you know, depending on, on a normal day, that's usually what it is. And, you know, we're in the office until five, six o'clock. But frankly, you know, the business never stops. So I like to clear my head and get away for a little bit, and go work out after that. But, you know, I'm back home by seven thirty, eight o'clock and usually, you know, doing at least another hour or so of emails and kind of finalizing things I didn't get to during the day or whatever it is. And so that's, it's almost a revolving circle of that every day, including weekends. Maybe, you know, you try to get your, yourself some, some freedom and uh, clear your mind as often as you can, which is vitally important. But, you know, when to get a business to this stage, you need to live and breathe it. And I'd say, you know, one of my recommendations, anytime anyone's trying to start a business, there's no possible way before you've started it to know what it will require as it starts to grow and becomes a real thing. Um, I think you have to. The one thing, and again, until you experience it, there, there's no way to prep for it, but you need to know that it is going to be your life uh, fully through and through. Every ounce of your energy you know, will have to go into it to get it to 
to a place that you wanted them to keep it there. And that is, you know, not traditional. That's, you know, the entrepreneurial life requires that. Oftentimes you work for a company or you have a more, you know, kind of traditional professional job and you're in the office from a certain time to a certain time, but you go home, you can kind of let go a little bit. That's not the way it works when you have your own company and in a you know, more entrepreneurial career path. Right. And building off that just a little bit, in terms of the business itself, then, like, what are the biggest challenges or obstacles you've had to overcome? Because entrepreneurship as a whole, obviously, it's very it's tough. It's tough to grow a business. And I'm just curious, if, like, Lensable, like, what's been the challenges for you guys? You know, I think there's a lot of things, but I would say, you know, from people probably listening to this, thinking about starting a business, I mean, it's really the funding part of things is really chicken and egg or cat and mouse or whatever the right way to describe it. You know, you oftentimes, like, starting a business is expensive. It just costs money. There's just a lot of different things to do. And, you know, oftentimes to get money, you need to show growth or success. And so it's always you're kind of trying to grow while trying to, live, you know, be run as lean as you possibly can. And that's really a never ending prophecy. And so I would say that is always because that messes with your psyche, right? It's, I mean, mentally, that's to comprehend and understand and, you know, be successful in, in but it also is true. And so uh, that's probably the hardest thing to overcome initially. I mean, you know, getting product market fit once you kind of have some capital and you can deploy it in the ways that you'd like to, right? So, you know, the next really hard part is getting people to like what it is that you're doing. And also taking early feedback and taking it to heart and making very, very swift changes as often as you have to, even if it goes against, you know, what you thought. Because in our business, right, our customers are our lifeline and if they tell us something is not working or they're not being serviced properly or something, you know, you need to make that change, even if it's costly or was all, it's a lot of work or whatever. So those things are kind of what I say everybody has to think about. And then building, you know, finding really good people that can share in your vision and understand it and then actually, you know, dive in with you. That's an extremely difficult thing to do, but one that is incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, that part, especially, how do you approach that then? Find the right people? Because obviously that's like, you know, one of the most important things is find the right team or whatever for your business. But how do you do that then? Yeah, you know, there's a, I don't know if there's any, uh, you know, right way for sure. We've had a lot of success. I mean, like there, there's a lot of good, you know, new platforms that come out where aggregate a lot of the really, you know, kind of top talent in, in the tech industry. Uh, I would say AngelList is where we've found an incredible amount of success sourcing new candidates and getting our, you know, job postings out there. Uh, it's a free resource or at least can be a free resource. A lot of free resources or, or inexpensive resources that exist, right? Even Craigslist, which seems like a bit of a, yeah, maybe an outlier for this type of a thing. We've had a little bit of success on there too. And you just make sure those first few hires are really good and they come from companies that, you know, probably also have good talent. Maybe it's friends of theirs that from previous company that they can refer in. And, and so referrals are, are always the best. But, uh, you know, when you're going to start kind of seek out new talent, we believe, you know, Angelus has been a really great place for us to do that. Yeah, it's definitely something that people talk about because it seems like it's a, a super popular resource for finding people. And it's just one of those things where like, yeah, people are there. So like go there and I know also like, I don't know if you guys have used like ZipRecruiter or anything like that, but you know, they sponsor a lot of podcasts and they also, a lot of companies work with them, but there are ways to find people. It just seems, but those first few hires though are so critical to the business because that's what you're building it off of. So it's like, man, it's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, but you figure it out. It sure is. But yeah, you know, it's a, 
there's I think one of the questions I saw that you you know we were talking maybe we can talk about was you know are there good content places and resources that you've lent you know leaned on to learn and know how to do stuff and I would say for me no but I'm unique in that I'm not much of a reader <laughs> I mean I think a lot of people have got you know gotten really good insights from a lot of things like that but what I think is it's a lot of on the job training you're going to be presented with situations you've never experienced before no book can tell you and you learn as it happens. I mean, so a lot of this is you'll definitely grow as a person. You'll encounter situations that um, you thought maybe would be too challenging for you and you'll deal with them. You'll gain a knowledge base through interaction and just other things you have to seek out and research that, you know, will absolutely help you and get you to start thinking in different ways. And so I'm a big proponent of this is a, a very on the job training kind of thing, being an entrepreneur and you know, first, at least first time entrepreneur, uh, I would say, I, you know, I have a wealth of knowledge that I've garnered over the past couple of years by running this business that, you know, I would definitely take into future ones and be able to, to kind of communicate out to people. But a lot of it was frankly, just having to learn, learn on the go. Yeah. And one of the things you touched on like a little bit earlier that I want to go a little bit deeper on is taking, you know, time away from the business. You mentioned like, you know, weekends trying to have clear your head or doing something to kind of unwind, whether it be working out or whatever. But what does that look like for you then in terms of stepping away from the business? Yeah. You know, I, at this point, I definitely, you know, try and keep my weekends as much to me as possible. Definitely, you know, a healthy amount of exercise and gym time, both during the week and on the weekends. Um, I golf a lot. So I try and that's a, a very time-consuming activity, but I try to get out, you know, once every other week or so on the weekends. They're, you know, just fun activities with friends. Make sure you're doing as much to, to kind of balance your mental state, you know, as possible and just really unwind or go to the beach. Fortunately, here in LA, we can do that. And, you know, that makes things a whole lot easier, you know, when, when you need to get away. Normal things like that. But, but definitely, you know, there's a portion of time that is uh, saved for work every weekend, at least at this point. Of course. I mean, you kind of have to at, at this point, like you said, like, it's just, you don't really have that option, especially with the, you know, the places you want to take the business, you kind of have to. So one, one of the last things I'm just wondering, you know, looking back at your career so far, having started obviously, multiple companies, work with multiple companies as well. What are some of those biggest lessons or takeaways you've had in your career so far? Yeah. You know, I think it's a steep hill to climb to be an entrepreneur to start a business from scratch. It's wildly rewarding when it works. It's a feeling, you know, the, the reward feeling is is kind of unlike any other. And so I, I definitely recommend attempting to get there for sure. But, you know, the takeaways that you're going to hear no a lot, you're going to hear negative things, a lot of pessimism. It's just all, you know, especially when it's a new idea that it, anything new for people is just different and it's hard to get them to buy in. And it's easier to talk down upon people's ideas or tell them they're doing things wrong. You know, and it's easy for investors to say no. Your business doesn't work for their strategy for whatever reason. And if you believe in what it is that you're doing, and you know you still have that passion and desire to make it great, you know that is an absolute foundational necessity to ever possibly be successful in business. And so, really, it's you know kind of make sure that you're willing to take this you know this very very long and tumultuous mountain climb. And the way whatever obstacles you encounter, you, you take them and you adjust, but you don't let them kind of send you back down the mountain. Um, if you truly feel that you are, are working on something that you are, are passionate about and is something you believe in. Yeah, exactly what you said. Something you believe in, something that's worthwhile, then you, you might as well try it. If you fail, you fail, but you give it your all and see what happens. You know, I'd say you are 
probably starting a business and failing is really not a failure at all. And it is extremely, extremely difficult to do this even for a few months, right? Let alone for a few years. You sacrifice a lot of time that you could be building expertise in another industry that's a little bit more safe and traditional or whatever it might be. But you will come out far, far greater as far as your resume goes, as far as what you're capable of and, you know, you as an asset to potentially another company or something after that, even if it doesn't work out by having tried it. So um, I think, you know, be prepared for, but know that there's really kind of a, a silver lining either way at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. And Andy, where can people go to learn more about Lensable and everything you're working on? Absolutely. Uh, Lensable.com. L-E-N-S-A-B-L. No E at the end. Although if you type in Lensable with an E, it will still send you to our website. But Lensable.com, we do prescription lenses uh, for your frames. So we are going to be a you know a significantly more affordable and convenient process for you to get you know, really high quality prescription or non-prescription lenses in a frame that you already own. Uh, we send you a box. We take care of shipping. We we take all the potential pain points out of the process for you, and you know we hopefully save you a whole lot of money. And hope come check us out. Awesome. And yeah, this is something we heard about you in class. I was like, yeah, this is amazing. It's this incredible company. It's going to be crushing it for a long time to come. And I will link to everything. I'll link to the everything, anything mentioned, as well as Lensable as well in the show notes if you can't for some reason type that out. But Andy, thank you so much for the time today, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we're doing it again soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.